1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
0: Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast. Stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Denise Leith, welcome to Better Reading. Thank
2: you. It's good to be here with you.
0: I'm surprised that our paths haven't crossed because uh, you've been writing for a little while and, of course, I've been talking about books for a long, long while. But let me introduce you. Denise is a Sydney author and former lecturer of international relations and Middle East politics at Macquarie University. Her debut novel, What Remains, was shortlisted for the Asher Award and the Fellowship of Australian Writers National Literary Awards. Christina Stead Award. She has also published two nonfiction works, The Politics of Power and Bearing Witness the lives of war correspondents and journalists. Denise's work has involved extensive travel, including time in an AIDS hospital in South Africa, in a refugee camp in the Middle East, and in an isolated village in the mountains of West Papua. Denise has spent a number of years mentoring Afghan women in fiction and nonfiction. Her novel, The Night Letters, takes you to the heart of Kabul in a story of secrets, friendship and love in all its imperfect guises. It's given me goosebumps because it's such a beautiful story. So welcome to the show. I'm really, really super excited to have you here. You might know that my background is Lebanese-Australian. So there's (laughs) we have quite a few connections here. So what we like to do here um, is to talk about how you came to writing. Where did it all start? So talk to me Mm -hmm. about where you grew up and when the love of, well, when you thought you were going to be a writer.
2: Ah, so... It's not that long ago. I'm not one of these people who always wanted to be a writer as long as it's the first thing they can remember. And I read lots. I loved reading. I remember the first book that really... Actually, I remember the first book that that I read was Little Women, I think, when I was Mm. 10. Well, the the novel-type book. And then I remember reading when I was 13 Gone with the Wind and I finished at 3 in the morning and I remember when Rip Butler says... Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And at 13, that was, that was so horrific that this love story wasn't going to end as you thought, a 13, you know, when you're 13, a love story would end. But my love of writing started at university when I started doing essays and then when I did my PhD, that was three years. And What did, did you gave do your PhD in? Uh, international relations. It would have been on the Middle East, only my mentor at the time, Robert Springborg, had left Australia, and he was working with the Bush administration, funding money into Egypt, and so I didn't have him. So I finished up doing it on uh, West Papua, and the uh, a company, American company called Freeport McMoran, who has the biggest gold mine on Earth, and operated in secret in West Papua. Um, being involved with the Indonesian military and destruction of the environment and destruction of the lives of the Indigenous people. Uh, yeah, so I, I I love researching. So I found that really great, but I also especially love writing. And when I finished that book and I had to turn it into a book that the general public would, would want to read, I was looking around for my next book and I discovered what it was and I just... I I actually started, I was lecturing, I started wondering about the people who give us the news. This is This is in the days before everyone had a, a cell phone and could, you know, could show you video from the war zone they were in. This is when we really did need journalists and photographers to go there. And I started to wonder who these people were and what cost was it to do this job and to bring this news to us. So... I researched them, I I travelled around the world, spent time with them and I found that quite extraordinary and I just loved the writing process yet again. And then it was six months after that and I was wondering, again, what book I would write because I never particularly wanted to write fiction. That wasn't anything that I was interested in because I loved fact and I loved researching. And I sat down in front of my computer one day and I decided to clean out some old files and I found this file called Book which is a really odd name. It doesn't tell you anything for someone who writes. So I opened it up and it was something that I'd never done before. I woke up one morning, you know, sometime before that, and I wrote down a scene that was playing in my head because I woke up with this scene in my head. And it was of a woman, which was basically me in a supermarket with a thousand choices of things to buy and not knowing how to move forward in any way whatsoever, just completely burnt out. And I think that was where I was at the time. And I remember thinking, well, that's good. I like that scene. And so I started writing. And from that scene, What Remains came, and it took me three weeks to write that book. It just absolutely flew out of me. I remember my husband driving the family down to my parents' place for Christmas, and I'm sitting in the front of the car writing longhand because I could not stop writing this book. And then when I'd written it, I looked at it and couldn't stop laughing because it was so bad. I mean, it was so bad. As a nonfiction writer, I had to learn how to write fiction. They're completely different. You know, in fiction, you have emotion and adjectives and it's so much easier, so much easier to write non-fiction than what it is to write fiction. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yes. Well, I guess I, it's the creative process. And
2: yeah, and it's all in your head. It's all yeah, got to come yeah. out of your head. You can't get the facts and put the facts down for the reader and, and present an argument and there you go, there you go there's your book. Okay. No, everything has to come from within you. Tell me about your travels, your travels and your oh, work. Oh, gosh, my travels. I've had some crazy, crazy... Travels, people. When I when I travel, I have a, a private Facebook page that just friends are are on, and they just love my travels and they follow it because crazy things happen to me. I mean, it's just like I don't know. I I attract insanity. But my travels, I guess the if we're being serious, the first thing was. The first trip, my husband said to me, you need to go to the Middle East because I was actually teaching Middle East politics and I'd not been there
0: right.
2: because they asked me to teach it when I was an undergraduate, which I wasn't allowed to tell anyone that I was still an undergraduate. So I went to the Middle East. I had some interesting experiences there, especially with Israeli security. I mean, the Middle East is a big place. Talk to me about
0: where you went and why.
2: OK, so I wanted to go to Israel because the, my main interest was the... Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's the thing that that I really couldn't let go of and I needed to understand. I needed to know why this conflict had not been resolved and, and why there was so much vitriol on each side. And I think it started oh, you've when you've got
0: to displace people. I mean, this is what happened. You, you you have a displaced
2: people. You displace a, you
0: Look, displace I, a whole race. You know?
2: That's right. I always I'd read Exodus, and through the years I had a huge sympathy for the Jewish people, for the for the nation. Um, and then in '82, I was watching the news, and I saw the Israeli invasion of Lebanon and the displacement of people, and I started to wonder if there was another story there. And that's when I started looking at what had happened to the Palestinian people. And, yeah, so that was the beginning of my interest in the Middle East and the Palestinian people. And I think the the refugee camp, you being of Lebanese descent, the refugee camps that I went to in the Middle East were Shatila and Sabra Mm. in, in Beirut back in the early '90s to to see what was was happening there, and what did you do with that information? Was it
0: were you writing throughout that trip, or were you just no? I was absorbing. Yeah, I was absorbing. absorbing. Okay.
2: I remember the first time I went to Jerusalem, and I stayed in a convent in um, the Via della Rosa, and this was a such an odd thing to happen for me. And I walked to the top because everyone in the old city lives like they do in the Middle East, a lot of people live in summer on the top of their houses and there was, I went up there and there was the call from the mosque and I said to myself, which out it, I didn't even know I was going to say this, and I said, I'm home. Mm. And that was just so strange. So I have a, a real interest in and love of the Middle East and the people there, of the generosity and the kindness and extraordinary people. Mm. Uh, But I stopped teaching Middle East politics at at some stage because I felt that I wasn't from the Middle East. And if I wasn't from the Middle East, I really, really, really couldn't speak for the people of the Middle East because you would know it's such a passionate topic. Mm. You you you, You can't have a conversation without that passion. And I felt that it was their story. It wasn't my story. But, but still, I, you know, I'm very interested in it and, and speak about it whenever I can. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So where else did you go? I went to Egypt. Mm-hmm. I went to, well, I said Lebanon, Israel and Egypt in, in that trip. Yeah. Mm. And I actually didn't get into Israel at first because I was flying out of London. And when I went into security, you know, the, the place that you leave, the plane leaves, um, the gate. I was pulled over by Israeli security, even though this was in Heathrow. And they interrogated me for over three hours and they wouldn't let me on the plane. And there was no reason I couldn't understand what was going on. They kept asking me the same questions over and over again. It was the first time I'd ever been questioned like this. I was a young mother, you know, I I taught Middle East politics, but I was a young mother. and, And what did your second son do on Tuesday afternoons? And what sport does he play? And who looks after them while you're gone? And why did you leave your children? How could you leave your children? And it was pretty awful. And, and they finished interrogating me or they let me go. The plane had gone probably yes. two hours before that. And this is all within Heathrow, mind you, mm. the gate. So I walked out and I think it was about one o'clock in the morning and there was uh, one of the guys who'd questioned me. There were three young uh, Israeli security guys and he said to me where are you going and I you know I was I was I was pretty stunned nothing like this had happened to me and I felt like I'd been through the ringer and and I said I have no idea and I remember he said to me because I was a lot younger then he said to me you can come and stay with me and I just looked at him and he said, You can trust me, I'm Israeli security. Mm. <laughs> those
0: yeah, words. Thanks. No thanks.
2: No yeah. thanks. So I walked back into Heathrow and, and this is early hours of the morning, and there's a lot of us ghosts walking around in international airports at this time of the morning, waiting for planes, I guess. And I needed to lay down. I was tired, I was was you know. And the only place I could find to lay down was behind the Irish ticket booth office because they had a lounge and they had carpet. But there was a man laying on this lounge. So what I did, I have no idea what he looked like. I still don't know what he looked like. I walked up to him and I pushed his body further along the lounge. And then I laid down the other side. So I slept (laughs) in this lounge till five o'clock in the morning. With this man, I had no idea who he was. When I woke up, there were all these people laying on the carpet. So there was all these other ghosts, you know, that had been wandering around. Anyway, so I got up and I caught the the train back into London. In these days, you didn't do anything by the internet. And I caught the train back into London and I got a ticket to Israel via Paris through Egypt and I went that way. And so I went through the Sinai and I went through Gaza and I got back into Israel and I was furious. And I went to the Israeli, the Australian embassy in uh, in Tel Aviv and I said, this is what they did to me. You know, this is appalling. And they just went, yeah, well, they do this to everybody. And they said to me, you just don't answer the questions. You just don't play the game. Answer the question once and then that's it. So when I was leaving Israel, um, I was ready for this. And they started again. And it was, where did you stay? Who did you see? And I answered the questions. And then when they asked me a question again that I'd already answered, I said, I'm not answering that. I've already told you. And then they wanted to see my receipt for my accommodation in the convent. And when I pulled it out of my handbag, I saw that my hands were absolutely shaking. I was really nervous and so instead of handing it to them so they would see that I was shaking I threw it on the floor mm. and that seemed to work you know and I was let through mm. interesting
0: yeah. isn't it I think and I won't go into this because you know it uh, don't get me started on the Palestinian <laughs> <laughs> plight but I do think there's a, a certain defensiveness if if you've got to protect yourself for the rest of your life and your people I mean, I just can't see how it's going to be resolved until Palestinians get a homeland.
2: Neither do I. And I was I was there a year and a half ago, and I saw the wall. Mm. I saw the wall, and I I took my husband because he, you know, all all the years that I travelled for work and whatever, he he had to work. Mm. His clients expect him to be there, and he never did these things with with me. And so he retired and I really wanted to take him to Israel. I wanted him to see some things that I saw and I wanted to take him to the Middle East. And we went to North Africa and it was amazing. Anyway, so we saw the apartheid wall and we had to go through the checkpoints because that wasn't there when I was back in the early 90s. And we went to Jerusalem and Hebron was closed down. The rest of the West Bank was closed down. And we got this um, Palestinian taxi driver to take us back to the wall to get back into Israel. And I was talking to him and he said, I can get you into Hebron. And I went, really? And and he said, yeah, I can get you into Hebron. And Alan goes, my husband goes, I don't think we should go into Hebron. I go, yeah, 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 we're going into Hebron. And he goes, you sure? And I went, yeah, let's go into Hebron. So it was closed down, but this taxi driver got us into Hebron and and it was a real eye-opener. You know, you, you've seen, obviously, mm-hmm. The, the, mm-hmm. what happens in the streets in Hebron. And, and we went to the street where they had basically built the, the Israelis because they're not supposed to be in Hebron. This is a Palestinian town. And they had built schools on top of Palestinian schools and houses on top of Palestinian houses. And to protect the Palestinians in the street below, they had, the Palestinians had netted off, the top of their street, you know, because there was rocks thrown down on them and things thrown down, and and we found this street where the only Palestinian had refused to sell his house to the Israelis was there, and he and he was a he was a funny guy. I don't know if he ever sold much out of his his shop, but he was interesting. And and due the, during the course of the conversation, my husband sold me to him for a hundred camels. <laughs> okay, so now we're Palestinians. So. And it was it was all good fun, and it was lovely. And, and of course, he tells his friends he couldn't bring the camels back on the plane, so he had to bring me back. So, but he, it was a real eye opener for him. And I, I, you know, I talked about the Middle East a lot and what was happening to the Palestinians. And, and then we went off to the Palestinian village where the, the young guy lived. And we couldn't get into the village because that day after he'd left the village in his car, that he used as a taxi the Israelis had bought a bulldozer and they'd closed off the road with with big boulders mm. for, I understand, absolutely no reason. Mm. So we had to go through a field in the car to get to his house. But I saw in um, Palestine, I saw on the top of nearly every hill, there was an Israeli settlement. Mm. So there cannot be peace until they have their own land. And I don't know how they're going to get their own land Mm -hmm. anymore with what I saw, sadly, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you want peace for all of them. You know, both sides want peace. It's just, it's just the people in charge. I sort of think on each side that, anyway. Anyway, so You yeah, can't go not, into that one. No, and it's not going to happen with Benjamin Netanyahu. No, anyway. it is not. And with no. Trump in the White House. No. He's no. moved the, the embassy to Jerusalem, yes. Yeah,
0: but I think Trump's moment is ending, so, uh, so that'll be,
2: we'll see We can Jerusalem. only hope, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm
1: Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: So tell me about um, how you got to mentoring Afghan women in fiction and nonfiction.
2: Ah, so I was writing the night letters, which was set in Afghanistan, which I hadn't been to. And I had intended to go to and and I made plans to go to it. But I, so in, in my research, because you're writing a book about a place you've never been to, you do massive research. You know. And it's, it's easy these days. You read and read and read. But if I want to drive in a car down the main street of Kabul, I can find a video that does that. I can go into a house in Kabul. I, I can go into a village. I can go into the Hindu Kush. Um, from the comfort of your own home. From the comfort of my own home. Personally, I would prefer to be there, but, yes, you can still see and start to feel these things. And I came across this website, which was the Afghan Women's Writing Project, and they call for writers around the world, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, who would volunteer to mentor Afghan women who were in Afghan who wanted to be writers? Or who who just wanted to write? And so I volunteered, of course, and I did that for a number of years. And it was it was very special. It was very special. They, so I just you did
0: it remotely.
2: I did it remotely. I loved I loved them. I loved them, and I loved their stories. And they wrote about everything that we were interested in. And and but more than anything, they wanted peace. Mm-hmm. But they talked about love and sex and marriage and boyfriends and school and education and friendships. They, they just, they were not censored. They wrote about anything and everything that they wanted to write about. And this was one of the important things for me with the night letters. I want to bring you into their lives in Afghanistan and I want you to see that they are just the same. As us and people this is one of the things I've learned people around the world we're all the same you know with the
0: recent bombings in Beirut yeah yeah I have cousins there and you know um, my mum is one of nine and she has six siblings there and they have children and, and a lot of those grown-up children live in Beirut and I've been there a few times um, but what I have noticed one is the resilience and the friendship oh, and the, oh you yeah. know that yeah oh they're but extraordinary. the other. Thing, It's extraordinary, isn't it? But the other thing I have noticed is how everybody, and, and, you know, this goes for probably every person on earth, is they just want to live a normal life. They want to raise their children. They want to work. They want to go to university. They just want to keep it normal. They don't want to be defined by war.
2: No. and, And I completely agree with you. This is one of the strongest points that I make in any conversation is I think that, We're all born as babies and we're just pure, complete love. And then we grow what I think these onion shells around us from, from our environment and things that have happened to us and learning and socializing, but deep down we're the same. And and I agree with you completely. All we want is to be happy and to be safe and for our children to be happy and to be safe. And that, that, joins us completely. We're all the same around the world. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It's, it, we, I want to break down the other. Mm. No one is the other. And, and people are frightened of the other. But when you know them, there is nothing, you know. Well, people are always trying to
0: highlight difference. And that's great too. You know, I mean, I, I, I love travelling myself. And I travel to see, to have different experiences. Mm. But like you're saying,
2: we're all the same. We yeah, are yeah. all
0: the same. And, and, there's, so much kindness and
2: needs. Yeah. there's so much kindness and gentleness in people if that is what you give them. Mm. It's so easy to change. Yeah, no, I totally agree with Your you
0: world. That. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, okay, so tell me about The Night Letters. Uh, so tell me
2: how that came about. Ah, so The Night Letters was an interesting story in that it was going to be a completely different book. Mm, of course. <laughs> because I had spent, I'd gone to Rwanda twice. I needed to know how the Rwandan genocide happened. Mm-hmm. And after I discovered that in fact, I don't think half the Tutsi, if not nearly all the Tutsi who did survive that genocide would not have survived if it hadn't been for Hutu, who were supposed to be the killers, mm-hmm. had not risked their own lives to save them. And so I also wanted to, what I wanted to write, I wanted to tell the world, about this because they are always seen as the killers. They are always seen as the horrible people. But when I went there and I interviewed a number of them and met them, I I came away thinking, would I? Would I have been so brave? Would I have been able to actually do that? Would, Would I have been able to risk my children's lives to save these people? often people they didn't even know. And if you've been to Africa or you've been to Rwanda and you know a village, a village is tiny. How do you hide someone in your roof for three months? You take out their their toilet every night. You You can't take in more food because you can't be shown that you're feeding people. So I wanted to write about that, but I knew that I couldn't write about Rwanda and the genocide. So I hadn't written about Afghanistan and I was fascinated in Afghanistan, so I decided that I would, without going into the plot, it was a plot set in Afghanistan that, that would segue into Rwanda. And it was my dear friend, Michael Robosan, who... W- and he's my dear friend too.
0: Ah, right. He's so <laughs> I gorgeous. He's- I wondered why there was a quote for him here on your book and I thought, oh, I, yeah. I yeah. guess it makes sense that you know him. He's
2: a great yeah. guy, and he's, he's a great writer. Oh yeah, he's, oh, I'm just so envious of him churning out a book a year. And, <laughs> mm. But but Michael and I often have coffee, and and I like to say that I would talk about the last paragraph I wrote, and he would talk about the last book he wrote. You know, because he's very prolific, and and he knew he liked what remains. He really loved that book, and and he knew I was having trouble with the story. And I think, and I'd been writing for five years. I was, I was having trouble. And and a number of times he said to me, why don't you let me read it? Which is hugely generous for a man so busy. And, and I said, no, a number of times. And then finally he asked me again and I went, okay, here it is. And it was really difficult for him. And Vivian, I remember at one stage, so it must've been hard for him. She said, Are you sure you want to do this? Because Vivian's Michael's wife. Mm -hmm. And he goes, yeah, I I do. And he came back and he sat down and he said, the problem with your book, well, he said all sorts of wonderful things about it. He said, you're trying to write two stories in one. And of course, that was the Rwandan part. And he said, you need to, in fact, I'll tell you the truth now, is is he said, you're writing three stories in one. There was a love story. There was a story about Afghanistan. And there was a story about Rwanda. He said, you need to, to decide which story you actually want to write because All of them are really good. And that was great because you know the truth when you hear it. And as a writer, you, you know, you're trying to make a book sometimes what it doesn't want to be and it will press back against you. You know, it'll shove back and it doesn't matter how much you want to create it in a certain way. It has its own ideas. And so when Michael said that, it was truth and I knew it. I knew it immediately and it was glorious. It was fantastic. So I went home and I just threw away the whole of the Rwandan part of the book, which meant completely rewriting the book. And that's when it, it came together for me magnificently. That's when the characters in Shahir Square came together and that's when I fell in love with them and that's when I focused on them and... Um, yeah, that's how I... Well, I think that's really good advice. Um, it's called The Night Letters. I'm going
0: to read Michael's quote. Michael Robotham says of The Night Letters, full of wonderful prose and with a stunning sense of place, The Night Letters is a story of love, betrayal, corruption and friendship. It made me weep and cheer. It's a beautiful quote.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, he's, he's very generous. <laughs> Well,
0: thank you so much Denise. I have really enjoyed our conversation and thank you for giving us your time today.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Eating, follow us on Facebook or visit bettereating.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio.
1: Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. For the love of home.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.